Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of the Racket Magazine podcast is brought to you by Sergio Tacchini, offering iconic tracksuits, classic polos, and the new Youngline sneaker. Originally designed in the mid-1980s, it's our favorite spring silhouette and it's back. You can get it now at SergioTacchini.com and follow them on Instagram at SergioTacchini underscore official for updates. Enter the promo code RACKETMAG at checkout and you'll get 30% off your order. some time off uh and we're back this week it's nice to hear your voice and uh who are we talking to we are talking to former wta player former uh usta president katrina adams not a former friend still a friend uh, i've known katrina for wow i don't want to say how long because that would age us both but it's been a really long time like decades it was great to have her on the pod this week we thought it was incredibly appropriate to have someone like her, obviously a former player, someone who's had such a great leadership role in tennis over the past 15 years since retiring. So it was great to have her on board. I think it was really important for us to take that time away from uh, releasing the pod for the last couple of weeks. Um, as you brought up when we decided to do that, I think it's a really good time for us to sit back and listen. And so um, we decided to do that over the last couple of weeks, but we're really proud that um, this week we're coming out with something that's very um, important for all of us to listen to. It speaks to the moment, obviously the moment being all of us trapped in a pandemic, seeing tennis sort of inch its way back in certain parts of the world. But more importantly, here in the States and here in New York, um, we're in the middle of a long overdue and righteous uprising against police brutality and against racism and white supremacy. And I think you know, just to acknowledge we're two privileged white ladies trying to have a conversation about this. And, you know, there are fantastic places to listen, to read. Um, I would really recommend anybody who wants to go deeper into this and just listen to this podcast. Anyway, the body serve had a fantastic episode out in the past 10 days called, I hope that fish eats you, which was Naomi Osaka's response to someone, um, on social media who questioned her race and nationality. Um, but that brings up an interesting, uh, point of conversation, which is, you know, we've tried to have Katrina on the podcast for a very long time, but what a great coincidence that we were able to get her now. Um, but on social media, this conversation has extended into the tennis world. You know, we've seen Naomi Osaka, Sloane Stevens, Francis Tiafo, and I'm listing black names 
not because they're black and they're talking about it, but just those are the ones that are, are seeming to do a lot of the heavy lifting. What, what are you seeing out there? Yeah, of course. And you know, let's not forget Coco Goff. I mean, the great thing for me is that we're seeing not only black tennis players doing this, and it, it's the young black tennis players that are really showing up in this fight. And it just reminded me of, you know, what Billie Jean King stood up for so long ago with the fight for equality for women. This is a moment that they've really grabbed a hold of and said, it is our time. We're the ones that need to stand up and make a difference because social media now is so important for the next generation and they have put it out there on social media. Obviously, we've seen some other examples. Uh, I don't want to forget also Chanda Rubin. There's so many players that we... Also some, some white players, Amanda and Asimova, tweeting about equality, Riley Opelka going to protests in Los Angeles. You know, I think it's a moment for white people to, you know, shut up and listen and try to deal with our white fragility, but also try to do some of the work, right? And that's not happening across the board in the tennis world among white people. No, I mean, obviously, look, I've had some really tough conversations over the last uh, three, three weeks um, about this with some very, 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 very close friends of mine. And it has not been an easy conversation. And, you know, some, let's say, fissures in relationships are happening because uh, based on, on some of this. Um, but again, the most important thing is for us is to be allies for our brothers and sisters. And so I think this is an opportunity for us, as you said, to sit back. I, you know, just finished reading White Fragility myself. And I think it's important for us to educate ourselves um, in what we can do as allies to help this cause. And it's been an enlightening, very uh, important couple of weeks um, in this world. And, you know, our little podcast, I hope, sheds a little light on that somewhat today with the very, very, very brilliant Katrina Adams and... Um, you know, I, I hope everyone just sits back and listens and has an open mind to these things. But yes, I am super proud of the majority of our tennis community um, and what they've stood for over the last few weeks. And, you know, I mean, names like Kim Kleisters, for example. I mean, there's just so many great uh, allies out there that really want the right thing um, for equality in this world. All right. Well, with no further ado, here is Katrina Adams on our podcast. We are both sitting in the same apartment. I don't know if that's coronavirus appropriate, but we have also been by ourselves for about, it feels like half a year. But Caitlin and I are actually in the same room. We're in my apartment in New York, and we have the great pleasure of having my very long time. I don't want to get into how long because that will age us both. Amazing uh, friend, Katrina Adams, former WTA player, former great player, beat my butt a few times on the court. And uh, also... Oh God, your list, your, your list is getting longer, my friend. Uh, former USTA uh, president, obviously former player. What are you, president of NJTL? I mean, there's so many things about you, Katrina, that you've like run the gamut. You're, you're now on the ITF board. Uh, there's so much. So um, I welcome Katrina Adams to the Racket Magazine podcast this week. What's up, girl? How's it going? So it's been an interesting uh, couple of weeks, my friend. Before we get into the moment, can you tell us, for people who are used to seeing you running the show at the U.S. Open, being the president at the USDA, what are you doing right now? What's, your, what's on your plate? What's, uh, what's your connection to tennis at the moment, other than being, a, I'm sure, a watcher and a lover and a player? Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, it's, it's always great to catch up with friends and, and just uh, candidly talk about issues. Uh, right now, I am the executive director of the Harlem Junior Tennis and Education Program, which is an NJTL chapter here in New York, based in Harlem. 
uh, vice president of the ITF, uh, chair of the GET Committee, Gender Equality in Tennis, as well as the Fed Cup Committee for the ITF. Uh, and I'm still on the board of the USCA. So I'm very much involved uh, in the sport from a, a lot of different levels. And every now and then I get to uh, be a commentator. So, um, you know, these last couple of months, three months now, I guess, with COVID, uh, being isolated and quarantined most of the time. And I've been able to really catch up on things. And, hold on, uh, hold on, hold on. We're, you weren't even just quarantined. Let's get into the like minutiae of literally the last couple of months of your life because it's also been an, an incredibly uh, difficult, emotional uh, few months for you with um, you know both your pa parents passing in the last uh, 12 months. Yeah. Also got COVID-19 as well. So you've just... You know, let's not try and be all like, I'm tough Katrina Adams anymore. Like, <laughs> you, there. you didn't let me finish. So go there. Last three months, but go ahead. <laughs> Since you brought it up. Yeah, life has kind of sucked the last three months. Um, you know, with COVID, uh, being isolated, being quarantined. I uh, lost my dad three weeks ago, not to COVID, um, but to a broken heart, having lost my mom and his love for 64 years. She passed away in August. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be able to fly out to Vegas where he was staying with my brother um, to be with him. And, uh, you know, and he died in my arms. So it's been very difficult in, um, you know, these last few weeks. But, you know, and on top of that, we have the, uh, the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, of which the world has watched. Uh, the world has grieved. The world has... Uh, supported me in many ways um, and and the world has left me in, in many ways so it's uh it's been a tough a tough few weeks but you know every day I've got to put one foot in front of the other and try to move forward and try to make sense in light of uh of everything and um figure out you know really what what my uh what's the point of my existence in in, in this world in America what what have you what are you concluding about that what are you processing about that that's what i was going to ask you about it's a transition moment we're having a crisis in the streets we have uh dialogues going on that we should have been having the whole time we can get into every element of that but you as a person what how how are you thinking about your existence right now where where's your head yeah it's been difficult i mean it's um you know, I, I think for me, and Renee knows me very well, everything that I've done, it's been to, my goal has been to make a difference, to make a change, to make things better, to be engaged, to be involved, to have a voice, um, and, and to be inclusive. Um, you know, I was the president of the USA for four years, and, and the biggest thing that I really talked about a lot was obviously diversity and, and inclusion, because here we go, right? It's, it's not hard to see when I walk in a room that I'm black and, and I'm diverse. And, and trying to really grow our sport uh, and get more kids of color engaged in the sport and make sure that there's an opportunity for them. Um, I've preached, I do say preached, at annual meetings um, about the struggle that people of color have had or diverse people in our sport. But it's not about that. It's about a human it's a, it's a human issue um, and, and how we've been overlooked or not supported in different arenas, um, how we are often uh, ostracized if we are at a, uh, a large event 
um, this is in general, not USCA, but in general, of going to a meeting or conference, and there's probably a dozen people of color, and and somehow we find each other and gravitate to be in conversation, and then we're talked about about us, you know, separating ourselves. And it's not about separating ourselves; it's about being inclusive of ourselves to find a comfort zone. And I challenge people all the time, why don't you go into a reverse situation as a white person to go into an all black arena or a Hispanic arena or an Asian arena and you find a dozen other people that look like you, who are you going to gravitate to and start to have a conversation? And it's not to be uh, a racist or to discriminate in any form, it's to find people that you are most comfortable with starting a conversation as strangers. Mm-hmm. And, and it's very difficult to get people to understand that. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think when you look at the events that have happened in the last nine, 10 days now, I think people are starting to get it and starting to understand that there are so many uh, predisposed unconscious biases out there that you automatically or or, or have a viewpoint of one thing or another without trying to assess the situation or even ask questions before you start to accuse. Um, And and those are the things that I've been trying to process really um, in the last week and and really the last few days as as I've watched uh, this movie, this drama, this thriller, this tragedy unfold before our eyes. Um, and that's kind of where I am right now. Uh, yeah, I mean, you and I spoke earlier today, Kat, about it um, a little, and, and Caitlin and I were talking prior to, to us starting this pod, and, you know, I think one of the things that's been really good about this is that, you know, when I watched, obviously, um, the funeral today of George Floyd, and it was a moving moment when uh, Reverend Sharpton got up and, and spoke, and the things that he said were about, you know, sort of, the kneeling on the neck of black Americans has been around for 400 years. And that was one of the things in the book that I'm, I'm reading right now about white fragility. It's sort of just, you gravitate to the people that you used to. And sometimes it's so unconscious because it's what you've grown up around. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times it's not, it's not your fault. You know, a lot of people, that's why it's called white fragility. Everyone takes offense to it. They get defensive rather than just listening to where the problems, the systemic racism goes. Um, so, I mean, in tennis, it's a unique situation, right? Because tennis is such a white sport, quote unquote. But now, like in the US, for example, you have some incredible black female particular athletes that have come through, Venus and Serena, you know, Coco, who's speaking out over the last week. It's just unbelievable what this young lady is doing. And that comes from great parenting and et cetera. And you've got Sloan, you've got Madison Keys, you've got all these great young black American players and they're doing so many great things. And your, your group before that, Laurie McNeil, Zena Garrison, Althea Gibson, yourself, do you feel that there's, the shift is there with the players, but it's still not the undercurrent of people, you know, that are making the big decisions like in every corporation in the U.S.? Yeah, I think it's, um, the players are there. And I mean, you know, we're lacking, obviously lacking on the male side, but we have Francis Tiafo who stepped up also in the last week, put the video together uh, on social media, reached out to me to ask me if I would be a part of it. And, and he was very successful in getting so many of the other top black players, not the African-Americans, but black players from 
around the world from France, England, um, and the U.S. And, you know, it just really showed the camaraderie uh, that is strong on the tennis tour, men and women, particularly with the players of color, because we are in a predominantly white sport um, globally. Now, you know, in, in the U.S., we, we talk about racial, racial biases all the time. It's not so much talked about the rest of the world because the rest of the world looks like what they look like in their, in their countries, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I think when you, when you talk about leadership, Billie Jean says it all the time. You have to see it to believe it. So unless you see yourself in these higher positions, in these corporate positions, in these decision-making decisions, you feel that you don't really have a voice. You feel like you're talking, but no one's ever listening. And that was my goal, you know, for the four years that I I fortunately had at the USTA, that I always tried to listen and then relay the message. Because I was the right messenger to tell the message. Mm -hmm. Very difficult for either one of you to tell the message of me because you're not in my skin, you're not in my shoes, you're not, you're not experiencing what I'm experiencing on a daily basis. And I've always tried to be politically correct in everything that I do, everything I say, every, every place I go and, and who I represent. And I continue to do that. But I think the latest events allow me to say, okay, Kat, you need to be even more authentic in your presentation and, and to letting people know that I too am hurting. I too am, am damaged by this. I don't have a black husband or a black son, but I have brothers, I have cousins, I have nephews, I have uncles. In this particular incident, that by the way, happens all day, every day. Um, it, they're just not always videoed. Exactly. All the time. And, and for me, as a woman even, People see my color first before they see me as a woman, if they are looking for something negative. And they're already sizing me up when I walk into establishments, I walk into stores, um, I walk into a meeting, um, and, and they're already deciding if, if, I am, if I'm worthy or have value of being in that space, if I should be recognized or not meaning approach to say hello or greet it. When I say recognize, be greeted. And, and, and that's what the platform of particularly the black athletes in America have been talking about for forever, but even more so from Colin Kaepernick taking a knee for the very thing that this asshole's knee was on the neck of this innocent guy mm-hmm. that he killed. That's what he was kneeling for. To fight against p- police brutality, and and too many people wanted to make it about so many other things as opposed to listening, and really trying to understand it to see if they could do something about. It. They didn't want to do anything about it. And you better believe if this wasn't on global television, on national television, every day we wouldn't be having this conversation now, because it would be they would have found a reason for his actions to have been right. And so when you hear the list of names that have been listed before George Floyd, and unfortunately there are going to be other names after, but unless we collectively come together as a human race and a human society to fight against this and, and, and fight for systemic change, 
against these unconscious and conscious biases, we won't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. We can say in the next month, yeah, things are going to get better. And we're probably going to see some things, hear some things, you know, so that things can calm down and people get back into, you know, into their, their rhythm um, of being at home right now because of COVID and, and who knows how this is going to grow back in the, in New York. Hopefully it doesn't, but we, we have to understand that people are different, but diversity of thought, collective diversity of thought is what makes us stronger and makes us smarter and makes us more knowledgeable. So when you talk about our sport of tennis on the leadership, yeah, they listened to me for four years, but where does it go from here? Who knows, right? Yeah. No, not in the immediate future yep. that I was going to be leading the USTA that that is diverse. Um, when we talk about our, our commentators in the sport of tennis, you know, I went to Tennis Channel in 2002 before they went on the air and told them, and I didn't have a lot of experience in commentating at all. I knew the sport. Yeah, I talked about tennis all the time. I said, you need me more than I need you. You know why? Because Venus and Serena were number one and number two in the world at that time. And they needed someone who could really commentate and understand what their thought process was, not just on the court, but off the court, to really bring some authentic conversation to why they were so successful, why they were so driven, why they didn't have the opportunities that other players had in their upbringing, or maybe they got more opportunities in other areas. And so that's what I brought to the screen for about 10 consecutive years before I got more, um, more on the business side, and I'm hoping to get back into it. But there's other networks that say, you're not a Grand Slam champion, so we can't use your, you're not good enough for, for us in a nutshell. And yet the men commentating on the sport are not even tennis players a lot of the times that I'm listening to. Pretty much, but, but, but that's, that's the biases that are out there. And they, don't even, and they don't think that I understand what they're saying. So, and, and it's a shame. But I won't, I won't stop trying to get on other networks to, to bring a knowledge that I have that's beyond the years of some of our Grand Slam champions. We all bring a, a diverse thought into the conversation and can touch on different things differently. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. It's about what's in here and what we're bringing to the table. Well, and so I think about that moment in, uh, when that situation at Indian Wells with Venus and Serena, I mean, that would have been a perfect, uh, that's a perfect example of needing to have a voice like yours or, you know, James Blake or. We were on tour then now. So we were, I, I wasn't in the booth. That's the point. Someone before us, you know, a Zena or a Lori, I think they had retired by then or a Leslie Allen um, who had been in these girls' shoes, who had felt and experienced racism in our sport growing up those ladies can definitely give you some examples i personally don't have any of those i grew up in chicago i think i was protected from those incidents when, if and when they happened by my parents so i can't sit here and tell you a direct uh a direct and overt uh racist act that was done towards me in my upbringing but those those ladies can um they live in the South, uh, Zena and Lori and, and Chanda. 
She lives in Louisiana. I'm sure she's got some stories, but it's, you know, you need to have these people on air so when anything comes up, they can talk about it. When James Blake was playing Leighton Hewitt and, and Leighton made the comment to, to the umpire, he didn't know, he didn't know what, he know what he was saying, but he didn't really understand the impact of it because he doesn't live in America. Yep. He doesn't understand what, what that means and what that implies. And Donald Young experiencing that either, what, two years ago, Renee? I don't remember. But yep. it's the underlying comments that the people that are saying do not understand how hurtful they are that you are a peer of mine, that I have respected. We eat in the same restaurants, we're in the same locker rooms, we're sharing all these things together, trying to be the best that we can be. But you have just torn me down. Yeah, by- and they still view, you, you, you then get that quick sense of, oh wow, you still view me like that, you know, as opposed to your opponent who's on the other side of the tennis court to you and as a human being. Yeah, I think that's part of it, Renee, you and I were talking earlier, too. I think part of it, too, is it's your upbringing. You know, and, and I, I get it. If I if I grow up in an all-white community, uh, all you know, my schools, my teachers, my friends, and the only stories that I know of black people are a depiction of how they are in movies, in films, on television shows, and, and maybe in the news, all these negative things that you hear, you are developing your understanding of all, of all black people. Exactly. Right? And, and so when you start to come into, come of age and you're getting outside of your community and you're going to college universe, and university and getting a job force and now you have to interact with people that don't look like you, you're automatically sizing them up to be something negative mm-hmm. before you even know them. It's so true. I mean, I mean I had the, I've had the luxury of like, you know, I grew up in Australia. I'm in a very white community, you know what I mean? And then I was traveling on tour for 20 something years. And most of the people that I met that were black were obviously involved in tennis or were tennis parents or whomever yourself, for example. And the only ever people that I ever met that were of African American um, backgrounds in this country were people like you and I saw how you were your family various so so I was lucky enough that that's the exposure that I got to 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 see that as well but you're so right because you know movie producers uh movie you know um executives in in uh in film are are white so it's all the depictions of I I heard a great story on white fragility today even about the blind side movie and how it was just it was glorified so much, right? And Sandra Bullock wins this Oscar for her depiction of a white savior, right? Coming in and the, and the, 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 the one black person in it was the, the kid who made it good in the NFL, right? But he was never depicted very smart. He was depicted like he was a little slow, like the kid was doing his contract. And I started thinking about this as she's telling me that I was listening to it, I have it on audiobook, And I was like, that is so right, again, this great movie that is so celebrated is depicting the one black person as not very smart, only could give in an athletic standpoint. And then when there's a one scene where he goes back to his neighborhood where he gets you know, basically attacked by two black youths and saved by the white mom coming in. And I'm like, oh my God, I had never thought of that movie like that. So I think it's really important for people to understand it. Yeah, black people have, and it's 
because that's that's what we see all the time. And I and I think that's the beauty of 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 what Tyler Perry has done on John Ridley and other black directors and producers because they're t- they're telling our stories. Yeah. And, and they're not all they're not all glorified. But at least they have the knowledge to be able to to go from here to here and and a wide range of stories that are real that truly happen in the way that they happen as opposed to someone who's never been in our skin tries to tell us who we are. And that's why it's been, you know, it's been frustrating in Hollywood, even for, for our black actors to get these leading roles that don't have to be about white people all the time, right? But it's, it's the way that the director or the producer, that's their mindset, that's their visual. So that's what they depict and that's who they cast. Um, but it's what they're showing the rest of the world and how they're depicting people of color. And I think the beautiful thing in, in watching the protests in, in the last week are, you know, the hundreds of thousands of collective people of all colors that are protesting around this country in America and in the world. around the world. I got a video from a friend in New Zealand that, that said, hey, we are standing with you, Kat. We know it's tough. Um, I can't imagine what you're going through or what you're feeling, but here's what we're doing in New Zealand. And, and it was a sea of people marching Black Lives Matter and George Floyd, Floyd and other names. And, and I'm sitting there going, in New Zealand? <laughs> I had friends in Germany that did the same thing. So, you know, this is a global, this is a human issue. This episode of the Racket Magazine podcast is brought to you by Sergio Tacchini, revitalizing and disrupting the status quo since 1966. Follow them on Instagram at Sergio Tacchini underscore official and go to SergioTacchini.com for more. Enter the promo code RACKETMAG at checkout and you'll get 30% off your order. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I want to link what we're talking about right now to something you said a little bit earlier, because from my perspective, one thing that is seeming to, for some white people, connect the dots is what you said earlier about this has been happening forever. We're just starting to film it. We're just starting to see it. We're, and I think some of the understanding of systemic protest, police force, policy, 
reparations. I had a call about reparations with my father two days ago. Just the idea that now that white people are learning to get less defensive and try to open their eyes a little bit more about some of these systemic benefits and not make black people do the work and not make black people have all the solutions, but instead look at ourselves and mm -hmm. step back and make more room. Do you feel that if you were president of the USDA tomorrow and you didn't have to be your more PC self and account for some of the white defensiveness you're gonna encounter and account for some of the pushback you know and the work you're gonna have to do to be seen as worthy, as you said, I'm curious, what would that be like? What would you say? What would be different? And can you look to do some of that stuff now that you're maybe thinking that white people can fucking handle it finally? Uh, it wouldn't be any different than, than what I did when I was president. And I, I think that was the beauty of it. I was very authentic and, and the speeches that I made and, you know, we have our annual meeting or semi-annual meeting <coughs> where I call it a state of the union event address. And so I was very fortunate and lucky to have my parents attend, you know, the U.S. Open or the annual meetings um, throughout my presidency and for them to see the success as to what they, you know, the, the reap the rewards of what they sowed in me. Um, and I, I specifically remember a speech. It was during the Me Too movement um, four, three or three or four years ago. And I was talking about um, diversity and, and with women, but also talking about the other issues that were going on in America at the time when our leadership in this country changed and, and the hatred that was being put out there on a daily basis. And I, and I reference in front of 1,100 people and saying, you know, it's very sad that in 2017, whatever year it was, you know, so my parents were born and raised in Mississippi in the 30s. And they grew up in the cotton fields and they went on to get a college education and moved to Chicago and went through the civil rights movement, this, 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 and this. And, and if we don't learn from their history and what they endured, and what we now continue to endure on a, on a different level, you know, it's just a more professional level, if you will, as to, as to the systemic biases that we have here in America now. If we don't change and, and really step up and speak forward for change, it'll never happen. So I already preached that within um, our family of the USTA, and, and it resonated with many. I'm sure I had some people tilting their heads to the side, but I had many people that walked up um, to thank me for sharing those stories or my opinions and to getting them to see things through a, diff through a different lens. Because as we mentioned earlier, if you're in your isolated community and the people that you deal with, how can you allow yourself to open up to think differently if you are not in those situations? So yes, tomorrow I would speak about what's happening right now and how it has affected our future players of our sport and the fear that has been in, in, injected in these young black kids of wanting to go into these white communities to play in tournaments because of the fear of how they're going to be looked at, how they're going to be viewed and wondering if they're going to show, show up at home a lot. It, it's, it's a problem. And, it, and we have a problem already in the sport where you know people are who they are and their true colors come out and so you know i often receive complaints from parents where 
their kids have been called the N-word or they've been called the N-word at tournaments and, and that they've been, you know, overtly cheated by officials or whomever because it's real. And of course, I receive those. I understand them. I believe them. And I take it to, to the powers that be within the organization to do something about it. But I don't know if the people before me or the people after me receive these complaints because people say, well, there's no need to be complaining because they're not going to understand. They're not going to listen. Or if they get them, they probably say, oh, that's not happening and push it aside. I don't know that. So I can only be responsible for the powers that I had, the actions that I took, and, and the uh, confidence that I built in people to entrust their stories with me and for me to turn around and be able to voice them at a level where people didn't have a choice but to listen. So I'm not in that position anymore. I'm still on the board. I still voice my opinions. So the challenge now is after our recent events is getting our kids, you know, kids of color comfortable in going to these tournaments, going outside of their comfort zone, traveling and being accepted and feeling like they belong. Because all of the events in the last 10 days are showing them that they don't. How do you, how do you get a, a child to believe that they're welcome and that they should, that they're equal. Because it's been proven that they're not. I mean, it took, it took over a week to charge these other three cops. Mm. That's what the protest was about. Arrest the other cops. Mm-hmm. It happened yesterday, the day before the memorial. So, yeah. So it, it's difficult. I run a program, I, and I, I, I'm actually grateful that we're not in session right now because of COVID, because it would be very difficult to get them to understand that. And we have a diverse program. So how do we – we now have to train the kids to that there are friends before COVID. Let's hope they're friends afterwards, that they're not looking at each other differently, yeah. and that they're too young to realize the impact of this. But yeah. we know they're not because kids are smarter than we are these days. They're more savvy than we are, and they can definitely manage this thing way better than we can. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so that's, that's my concern right now, and, and that's my cry at the same time because I'm not sure how to deal with that. It, it's hard for me to deal with it. It's hard for me to deal with it, and it's hard for me to talk about it without being emotional. So... The first time a child comes up to me to ask a question or make a comment about that, I'm afraid for that moment for me, not for the child. Of course, I will come up with the right things to say, but it's going to be hard to rebuild that security and and that safety net for our kids. And we're doing it through sport and sports taken away right now. So they don't even have the outlet right now to let go of their anger on the court, smash as many rackets as you want. Cause I know you've been cooped up in the house and you've got a lot of angst built up in you. But that tennis court is their safe haven where they can really express themselves and, and be who they are with, without being judged. Mm-hmm. And, and it's gonna be hard to, to, to bring that back. Yeah. I want to sort of 
acknowledge that again, like it's not up to black people to solve problems that this white power structure continues to reinforce. So thinking about that and power structure, my context is media. I came up through newsrooms like the Washington Post in time and I saw the people in charge. They didn't speak to me. They certainly didn't speak to people of color. And so on every diversity committee that I was on or every attempt that I made was to challenge power. Because to me, power is what a lot of this is about really too, right? Police can get away with this because they have power. And we have not treated black people like they deserve power or they have righteous anger at when power is abused, which is why it's a perpetual system. So in the context of tennis, my question about power, who has it and how we can make sure it's more equitably distributed are things that I'm using my magazine to do. And I wanna know what your thought is about some of the power structures changing because it can't just be black people fixing this. And I think when I look at what tennis can be, the best of tennis, a place for trailblazers, a place for political activists in the 60s. I look at Ash, I look at Billie Jean advocating for women. It's the only sport that women can really truly make something remotely equaling the men uh, out of every sport. LGBT rights, trans rights. Tennis was and has been at times ahead of the curve. I think it's fallen behind and I'd like to see it get back out in front again. And I wonder what the power structures that we can talk about can start to change to change that. Yeah, so see, I'd like to eliminate the word power. Tell me more. Tell me more. That's where it is. I mean, that cop felt that he had the power to do what he did. The one person who thinks he's the most powerful person in this world is the root of all of our causes, particularly here in America, because he's made everyone think that being racist, being biased, being a bigot is, is, is absolutely okay. And, and so therefore... Things have escalated in the last three and a half years to where we are now. And until we get him out of this office and people get out and register and vote to make change, not just at the top, but every two years in between for, for the congressmen and, and women and House of Representatives and our judges in particular, unless we are, are rigid and, and, and vigilant in doing what we're supposed to do every two years and not every four years, then we won't have changes. Yep. It starts from the city, local level, all the way. You got to start at the bottom to get to the top. And that's, there's no doubt about that. Um, you know, on a lighter note, Kat, can yeah. I just, because, you know, I have known you a long time, but, but, uh, one of the things that I did love about you being president of the USTA was that for the first time I looked up into the president's box and it was like 95% of the people in there were like people just like you. And I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. I looking up, you know me, I'm sitting on this, you, you, you always spot me. I'm down there working for ESPN right behind the umpire. It was probably 50%. It wasn't 90%, but it was a big difference. It was 90% more than what was there in previous years. You know, one of the things that I, people have said, oh, well, you know, you, you, you know, Kat really changed the look of the president's suite um, with her friends and, and family. And so I said, yeah, because my friends and family look like me. I said, so you can't tell me that the presidents before me didn't have their friends and family in there. They look like them. So you didn't know who they were. So you couldn't judge 
and say, oh, they must, they must be her family and friends. Many of them were business people as well. And, and so again, you know, it's just the mindset and the thought that they had to be just her family and friends. No, many days they were actually, you know, well-established and successful business people who happened to look like me and that I invited them because of whatever the relationships that we had or business relationships. So, so yeah, that, that's changed, uh, changed last year, but it's because, I mean, let, let's grant it. Renee, if you were the president, most of your family and friends are going to look like you. Now, you do have a lot of friends of color. If you're guys, guys. Yeah, but we, could, we can't tell by just looking at you. We see white first. All I'm going to see is white, right? So I don't see the inclusive part, okay? Unless everybody's wearing a rainbow or there's something to identify themselves, right? Which they probably would feel, which is great. But that's, that's what I'm saying. So we, we can't judge on the surface. You didn't and, and that's what and that's what black people are judged every day because of the color of their skin, which starts a conversation down that path. But if you're gay or a lesbian, they don't see that initially. All they see is white or black until until it's brought to their attention. Oh, well, I'm gay or I'm a lesbian, and then that starts sparks another conversation. But at the end of the day, everything is black and white first. 100%, I agree. Do you think, if you were, if I have a six-year-old, if my six-year-old was black, he's not, would you tell my son that tennis was a more welcoming place for him than other sports? Or all things being equal, should he look elsewhere? Um, I, I think the entry level of our sport is very welcoming. And, and that it's factual. Um, and, and that's why we have, I mean, Renee's been a part of some of these NJTL programs around the country. Um, and it's not just the NJTLs. They have a membership of, of to be in, a, in certain chapters, but there's thousands of other programs that are like them that just don't have the criteria to be in NJTL. So there are a lot of free programs or low cost programs of tennis. You know, if you can get your child in a diverse obviously program it just depends on where you are but at the end of the day it's up to the parents to teach our kids and to make sure that we're putting them in environments that are diverse that they can learn about all races so whether it's our sport i mean do you want to put them in 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 basketball or, or football where it may be predominantly black then he's not going to learn the different cultures and, and how to to really communicate with people that don't look like him I mean, if you go to Texas, hell, football is all white. It just depends on where you're from, right? It depends on the communities. So you, you can't, I don't think you can pick the sport because you want them, want them to be in a more, um, uh, a sport that is either black or white. It's really about what you want your child to learn and, and what you want him to get out of sport as a whole and how he or she can develop. Well, I tell you what, I mean, one of the things that I've just been, we've already spoken about her, but, um, you know, Serena's been great throughout her career um, and Venus have both been great uh, taking the lead on many um, different social issues. But I have such great faith in the next generation of kids. And I think, you know, that was one of the things that Reverend Sharpton said yes to today 
um, was that he has hope for the first time in his life because he's looking out. He's like, you know, in the 60s, it was just people that look like me marching. And he goes, now it's a very diverse uh, group of people that are out there marching and demanding change. Um, and so he said, I really feel like that. And I think in tennis, when you look at someone like Coco Goff at 16 years of age, sort of really taking a stand and Francis Tiafo and both, both of them young, great pioneers in the sport with a name. Um, that's where I feel really happy with the sport of tennis that they are going to make a huge difference. And someone like Coco, if she continues to go the way she does, boy, she could be a change maker. And I said, I tweeted out that she's what Billie Jean was 50 years ago for, for fighting for women's rights. And I just feel like Coco is going to be a, I hope she continues to play the way she's been doing. And she could be a huge catalyst for, for the sport of tennis anyway, of getting people involved. Kat, um, I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you that, that moment at the US Open um, where you had to sort of, you, you, I, I would imagine that you felt like you were such in the middle um, with Serena and Naomi and what happened during that US Open final. And being your friend, I know the person that you are. And, you know, I know there was a lot of slack thrown at you for various reasons. People had a lot of opinions. Um, I want to know what that moment was like for you, like personally. Um, you know, it was challenging. You you don't know how you're going to react or, or what you're going to say in those instances. Um, you know, I tell the story. It's in my book, Own the Arena. It comes out in March. Yeah. But it's really, um, you know, there's a period, there was a five to probably six minute period of, of me moving from the suite down to courtside um, of where I kind of missed the entire altercation of of the penalty so by the time i got down courtside it was five three and i'm going what's going on uh -huh. so they're trying to tell me courtside but nobody down below could hear what was happening so i had to go inside to the tv to kind of hear the the commentating and, and try to you know understand what had happened or what was transpiring out there so i was just as shocked as as many other people when that moment came, but in understanding the penalty and what was said, understanding what was said to warrant the penalty, I go, okay, yeah, I get that. But timing is everything, right? You don't do that when you already have a point. You do that for a warning or maybe a point, but not for a game. Yep. Um, so when you talk about the code, it is what it is. Now, I don't agree with the first warning that was given, which got us into this mess or got her into this mess. But for me, when I had to go out there and speak, you know, I'm trying to come up with words that I'm not sure where they're coming from. I know they're coming from my heart, if you will, because I wanted to make sure that Naomi recognized that, that, that she got the applause that she deserved as a first-time Grand Slam champion and a first-time U.S. Open champion. But yet trying to empathize with Serena and, and the things that had transpired on the court. Um, and, and the, the outcome of those behaviors and the penalties that were assessed. And Kat, you've known, you've known Serena for 20 plus years. So this, you know, this is a lot of, you know, presidents don't really have that, you know, friendship slash um, connection with players. They're kind of like heads of state where they don't really know the players that well. You know her. So that's where your empathy comes out for that situation. So, you know. Right. So, so, you know, the, the ceremony starts and, you know, I've got butterflies inside because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 
I can't believe what has just transpired and, and the crowd and, 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 and her um, outbursts on the court, et cetera. And so, you know, you start the trophy presentation and, and Tom, you know, immediately says, welcome to the United States tennis. And I'm like, 20,000 20, people are booing and I'm going, oh shit, like smiling, but going, wow, right? So you don't know what that feels like to be on the receiving end. And after he says that, here's the chairman and president of the USTA. And I'm looking at him going, now? You want to give me the mic now? So I'm like, yeah. Okay, I'm trying to digest all of this. And, you know, my words are, are getting jumbled. I thought I did a pretty good job. But what I didn't explain is that the, the one comment that got me in trouble was when I referenced the outcome of the match. And I was referring to the outcome of the circumstances that happened in the match, right? Not the winner. And so people says, oh, you wanted Serena to win for, because she was black. Dude, did you happen to look at the other player? So, I, you know, I got, I got uh, in Twitter sphere, I was just ostracized. I mean, it was like, I, I had to just put my phone away because it was just buzzing the whole time of, of how, you know, how disingenuous my comments were and how biased they were and, and this, that, and the other. And I'm going, what are you talking about? Because I hadn't heard, I, I thought I, Gave a pretty good speech, got through it. Uh, it was a nightmare. And um, so I didn't really know until, I didn't even hear what I had said until I was on ESPN the next day for, for an interview before the men's final. And, and so I'm going, oh, that's what they're talking about. I'm like, okay, yeah, but that's not what I meant. So you've decided what I you you've decided what the interpretation is of, as to what I said that it was about Serena and it really wasn't about Serena it was about the the behavior it was about the umpire it was about the booing in a championship match this is not the outcome that you want to see in a finals of a Grand Slam right that's what I was talking about for outcomes so you know for for two days it haunted me I had to go on CBS this morning. Tuesday, which is two days after the freaking event, and, and it just never stopped. So um, I have no regrets. Uh, you know, I wouldn't change anything, maybe clarify what outcome I was talking about, but it definitely wasn't about the outcome of who won the match um, because I couldn't be more proud of Naomi, you know, and, and following her. Uh, Renee, no, she was, you know, it was, and I even wanted to say, you know, she was once a rising star who has now risen because she won the rising star event at the WTA finals in Singapore a couple years before. And now that star has risen to be a grand slam champion. And she grew up in Queens. Yeah. I mean, I, so I could not be more proud of her and what she'd accomplished in, in, you know, really painting, reaching her dream of, of beating Serena at the U.S. Open finals. So you can't write a better script for this. Um, but it is what it is. And, and, you know, I, I don't, when I think of that match and the way you handled it specifically, I don't think anything other than I'm glad this was a woman who was doing this. I'm glad this is a woman of color who's doing this. I'm glad this is a woman who's played on the tour because so often you have commentators, leaders, speech makers who, you know, have not spent 
a lot of time in an empathetic position who would even make those calculations. You know what I mean? And that's what I think a lot about when I think about who gets to talk about the sport, who gets to lead the sport, who gets to have magazines about the sport, who gets to be booked on all the morning shows about the sport. Um, and so for me, what I take away is that was landing a plane in a real turbulent storm, you know, like the plane got to the tarmac. And can I just say, I don't think people realize how big that stadium is and how difficult it is to actually have a mic in front of you when the lights are glaring on you and you have to make it perfect. I mean, give me a break. It's not, it's not easy. Yeah, no, it's, listen, I, um, things happen for a reason. I was in that role for a reason. Um, because I could empathize with, with the players, with the situation, um, with the umpire, with everybody that was involved, right? Um, because I was that player and now I'm that person of color. Uh, and because of that, you know, I went off script. You know, I had my speech and notes or whatever, but I couldn't rely on those because that wasn't the moment to just, you know, be generic. That was the moment to really be authentic, of which I tried to do. Um, and I'm proud of, of what I did and how I handled it. Um, and, and you're right. It was the right person because I will tell you that my successor, I got back in the suite and said, oh, boy, better you than me because I don't know how I would have dealt with that. <laughs> and, 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 and I laughed at him. I'm like, yeah, you, you, you. I said, yeah, you owe me big time, buddy. You owe me big time. But um, but. but I, that was Pat Galbraith, who, of course, was a former player himself and a very, 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 very nice guy. And of course. Yeah, of course. But, but, but still, a white guy in that situation, I don't care who it was. Remember, all we see is color. We don't look at credentials. We don't know credentials of people. The average person sitting at home has no idea what his background or credentials are, right? They don't know what my background or credentials are. They, all they see are, is color first. And, and we're judged on what comes out of our mouth based on that. And then they ask questions later, right? Then they, then they Google to kind of find out what your, what your credentials are. But, you know, it's, um, I'm okay. I mean, you know, again, I, I, I didn't sleep for a week only because I could not get in touch with Naomi because mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure that she understood that what I was saying was not against her and that I was applauding her. Uh, et cetera. And, um, you know, I'd reached out to her coach at the time, Sasha, and um, sent a long text because I've known him since he was like 19 when he came on as a hitting partner of Serena. And we, we became, we've become really good friends over the years. So I knew I reached out to him and I didn't hear back from him for like a week, but of course he just won a grand slam. So he's probably got a thousand texts that are coming in. So about five or six days later, I reached out to him again, and he said, oh, my God, I didn't see it. He goes, you have no idea how many texts I got, and I didn't respond to all of them. I couldn't get catch up with them, blah, 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 blah. Um, and he accepted my, you know, um, reasoning and my apology if, if, if my words were misconstrued, this, that, and the other, and I needed to speak to Naomi. And he's like, hey, we're going to dinner. They were in Japan. He's like, we're actually going to dinner in an hour. Just give, give her a call. Here's the number. She'd love to hear from you. And that was it. And, you know, she accepted my, my words. She knew that I didn't mean any harm um, from her. It wasn't about me. It was about the entire experience that, that she was taken aback from. And I, I just want to add one thing about that. I, 
you know, I've spoken a lot about Coco, but I do want to say that Naomi has also stepped up in the last week a lot as well on social media. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. It's been great. I, you know, when you're black, you know that you're black. Or if you think that you're different, someone reminds you that you're black. And, and you better believe that Naomi has been in positions to be reminded that she's black and that she's not Japanese. And, and, and that's sad. It's really sad. So the, the power, the, the strength that she's had since 20, what year was it? 18, 2018 US Open. Remarkable. 2019 US Open and then beat Coco and bring her on the court. She knows that she's that role model now. and She's the next leader of the sport and the next leader of the sport who's of color. And this isn't the only time that I've seen her step up and step out of, of a comfort zone. She's done it before and she'll do it in the future. And so I am, I am so excited about the future of our sport with our young players not hiding behind a racket only and being able to talk about social issues, both the men and the women, boys and girls. And, and I think it's a great future. And I think, you know, Billie Jean King has to be proud as to what she's witnessing um, from this particular generation uh, in particular. I mean, you know, our, our generation, I think we still had to be somewhat politically correct. Yes, I stepped out on many limbs and said things or did things differently, but I also was more politically correct in statements than being very authentic because of who I represented behind me or, or as, as an organization. Um, and I don't go back on anything that I said and everything that I said for me was true and authentic. Uh, probably could have added a little more color to some things, but I didn't. But yeah, I am. Yeah. I know because you know I'm not going to give your email address out on the, our podcast, but I, I don't need to tell everybody what your old email used to be because it was a little bit more colorful than what it is now. Let's just say that. Okay. <laughs> well, my <laughs> name was Hollywood. So what? Well, we talked about with the U.S. Open is in your book. You have written a book. It's coming out. It's supposed to come out in July, um, <laughs> but because of COVID, it's coming out in March because we didn't have any time to promote it. We can't travel and, and, and really do any speaking engagement. So we've moved it to March of 21, um, right before uh, the Indian Wells swing, and, and hopefully we'll, we'll have an opportunity to really promote it properly next year. Can I still ask you some questions about it? Yeah, sure. I noticed, obviously, the US Open, the incident we just talked about, sort of the fallout and your many sort of considerations and being a leader and wanting to do right by everybody, but at the same time, handle a hostile crowd, you know, kind of illustrates the balancing act of being a prominent woman needing to represent in some cases, maybe not always feeling like representing. Um, and I'm struck by the subtitle of the book, which is called Getting Ahead, Making a Difference and Succeeding as the Only One. Right. What does that mean? Uh, let's see. I'm the only African-American to be the president of the USTA. I'm, you know, there's a lot of onlys that I, that come behind me. Um, and, you know, when you're, when you're a leader in an organization, um, my thing is not, my goal is not to be the only one. I prefer the title as being the first, because if you're the first, you're trying to bring many behind you. 
but um, when I was in that office, I was the only former player. Now there's a second one with Patrick. But there were a lot of onlys. I was the youngest, which means I was the only one of that age. So that's what a lot of, that's what the only one references. But there'll be a lot of innuendos uh, about being that only one and what it means. And so when you talk about own, own the arena, it means really own your space, own your, own your arena. It can be, it's not about a stadium or a building. It's about your space. It's about that moment. So, you know, it's owning your voice. It's owning your opportunities. It's owning the table um, as a chairwoman uh, of that board and, and being on other boards. Um, and so hopefully it's a, a teaching tool for many of the readers that will, that will read it, that they can use in their own growth uh, in business. But also there's a lot of stories uh, in regards to how tennis prepared me for these various situations and opportunities and moments to succeed in life and make a difference in others, in others' lives. All right. So I'd be remiss in not asking you what was your greatest tennis moment? Because we talk about, you know, we're talking about you like you're this, you know, person that sits in boardrooms, but you were a player for a number of years. Like what was your favorite tennis moment? Other than beating. What are you playing with you, Renee, when neither one of us could play the deuce court? Okay. So, so that was a, that was the biggest moment, and and we just did that didn't work out very well. Um, you know, it is it's interesting. I would say many of my greatest moments are actually losses. You know, as a rookie, I got to the fourth round of Wimbledon. I lost to Chris Everett in three sets. You know, when I was brash, I was Hollywood. I it was cocky. Well, I'm so cocky and thinking, you know, and thinking that I was going to win that match until I looked up at the scoreboard and realized that I could win the match or was maybe on my way of winning it and lost focus. So you learn from those, you learn from that to say, okay, yeah, I did lose to one of the greatest players of all time. And, and you have to contribute that, you know, she got her game together. She'd never played me before. So she figured my game out. I was out of shape. So I ran out of gas as well. But I mean, that's a, that was a big moment for me in a sport that I, from the west side of Chicago, I'm at Wimbledon playing Chris Everett, whose name was on the first racket that I had. Um, you know, that, that's kind of surreal, right? It's full circle. And, and we're great friends today. One of the times in beating Martina and, and, and Pam, you know, when they were still the greatest. And I was actually playing with Mercedes Potts at Hilton Head, the family circle. And... I mean, just that feeling of beating this team. I played them numerous times before and hadn't won. It had close matches. But, um, you know, there's other times I beat um, Manuela um, Maleva Franier at the time. She was number three in the world. You know, great match where I was in that tunnel focus vision, you know, from start to finish. But other losses are – Losing to Steffi like five and five, knowing that I was there and and had and was competitive. Uh, lost to Helena Sokova six six and six. You know, um, I mean, what a match! Um, but the, you know, unfortunately, I didn't I didn't take those moments to to take me to the next level. It was uh, so those are those are very interesting moments. But I won twenty I won twenty titles and probably lost twenty finals. So. It's um, in doubles. And I, and I think, you know, I had a very good career, a very solid career. Could I, could I have been more successful? Probably. But 
I always had it. You were having a good time back then, right? I mean, seriously. Yeah, when you I, was saying, I, was, I was having fun, but I was also political. I was yeah. on the board. I had a lot of things that were taking my focus off of just training and playing. And I don't regret it because they, it prepared me for what I've been able to accomplish today. I've photos of us playing the, the softball game. Remember we used to have- Oh, in Miami at Key Biscayne. We used to have a softball game. It was the players against the WTA staff. Yeah. Uh, they had no that's chance. Just, that's a totally unfair And there's a photo of Katrina. I still got it somewhere, Kat. I'll find it and I'll send With it. With my green baby suit and my shorts. Green yeah. baby and mitt. <laughs> And then remember, and, and you guys would give me shit the way I caught with the, the glove. And I mean, it was just, we just, we had, it was a different mindset back then. It was, we were such a collaborative group, like truly, um, we were all good friends. And you know, and Chrissy talks about that. Like we had to have one another. We had to have one another's back. We had to practice together. We, it was only like, if you had a coach, you were special. You know, you were like a really good player if you had a coach all the time with you. It was just like, it was a different mindset back then, but it was also. Well, we also used to have these skits at Eastbourne, so oh, yeah. every player had to be involved in a skit, and you had to come up with your own team. No, not every player. Not well, every. Pretty much, majority of the players. Me, Pam. You know, it was about seven of us. That yeah, we but it was fun. But it was, but it was a camaraderie and the friendship that was developed, you know, early on, um, that kept each week interesting because it was a grind out there. It was a, it was a much greater grind, I think, than. I don't think I know then than, than it is now because you know the money is a lot different now for these players to be able to afford certain things but we were scraping you know we were scraping our asses taking trains back and forth from Eastbourne uh, to from Birmingham to Eastbourne Eastbourne to Wimbledon and and so forth and so on but you know it was fun and I, and I think you know the one thing that I can walk away from and and say that I have great relationships with the greatest player that I was not the Grand Slam champion, but yet I can pick up the phone and call any player around the world if I'm in need. And that I'm friends with the greatest players in the world from, from Chrissy to Martina to Steffi to Monica to Hingas to Renee to everybody, you know? And it's, I mean, you can't, you, it, I can't trade that in. No, well, you'll always be my golf partner on tour. So, so that's a good thing. <laughs> hey, have you been swinging them lately? Not, no, we've been in COVID. I can't play golf. But I've got to get you up here in Westchester. we got to go play. Invite me, man. I sold my car. You're going to have to come and pick me up. So that, that's, no, I'll pick you up. Come pick me up. I'll, I'll play anytime. Okay. All right. I'm, 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 I'm going on a golf weekend tomorrow. So uh, I'm going to PA tomorrow, but, but maybe the next weekend. Yeah, listen, let's, let's do it. Listen, Kat, we could sit here and talk to you for hours and hours and hours about so many things about the, I mean, the collaboration of the WTA ATP tour, we could have got into that, but we're going to leave that for another pod. Another we, got, we got plenty of days, plenty of topics. I'm happy to join you guys. Um, I want to thank you for reaching out, Renee, because, you know, it's been a tough couple of weeks and, and you allowed me earlier to air my feelings, my thoughts, my concerns, my fears on the phone, um, of which I then elaborated um, further, in, you know, with you two here. Um, it's been tough. And, you know, and in, and in an isolated quarantine world, um, you know, to sit and watch this and what's transpired and, and, you know, losing my dad three weeks ago, you know, was a killer. Um, you know, most girls are daddy's girls and that I was and 
know, I celebrated my parents um, on tour. You know, wherever I went, they went and in my events in recent years. So this has allowed me to open up to uh, really um, express myself um, in the most authentic way. So I thank you all. Kat, please come back. You're, you're my, my ever my ever friend, um, and I love you. So uh, now instead of doing my pod, let's go and have a drink next time. All right. <laughs> all right. I'm always up for that. And that's it for this episode of the Racket Magazine podcast. Thanks for listening. Our host is Renee Stubbs. Our co-host and producer is me, Caitlin Thompson. Music by internationally renowned DJ Stretch Armstrong. Thanks to Tim Rogerian and the team at Acast. Find us at racketmag.com slash podcast and subscribe to us at any of your favorite podcatchers. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.